Amen. Amen. And our New Testament reading is our sermon text in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Are you ready to work with me today? Got to work today. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, recognizing this verse 22. You are the king of all. Everything has been placed in subjection to you, even if it doesn't look like it. You are ruling And you are reigning, and we are rejoicing. So bless your name, Lord Jesus. Speak to us now from your precious word. Drive deeper into our hearts the things we already know and cause us to rejoice even greater over the main things of your word. These challenging things, Father, have patience with us and help us. So, Father, we ask once again, as we ask every Sunday morning, that the words of this feeble-brained preacher would be pleasing to you and that the meditations of our hearts together would also be pleasing to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening intently. Please save those who don't know you. May verse 18 just come alive in in the depths of their being. And may, may they be drawn to the beauty of Jesus. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do sinners any good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. All right. We're going to encounter some tough stuff in this passage, uh, especially verses 19 and 20. But we're not going to begin there. We're going to begin where it begins in verse 18. But let's remember, as we dive into this text, these five verses, uh, let's remember something that I heard many, many years ago from Pastor Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, He said, uh, the main things are the plain things, or 
the plain things or the main things. I'm not sure of the order of the plain and the main, okay? But you get the point. The important things in the Bible are the things that are clear, okay? So let's remember that as we wrestle with this passage today. My goal for this passage over the next few weeks, we're going to camp here for a little while, okay? Jeremy's preaching next Sunday, then we'll come back to it on Ascension Sunday because verse 22 is talking about the Ascension, and then we may come back to it one more time. Uh, We'll see. We'll see how that goes, okay? But my goal is this, two goals. I have a two-fold goal. Number one, I want to hammer and highlight the main things, the main things in this passage with the goal of encouraging the saints and challenging the unsaved to respond properly to Jesus. Number two, I do want to explore the difficult things, the less clear things without being dogmatic. I don't want to ignore them. Here we see, once again, the beauty and the challenge of verse-by-verse preaching, okay? When you're strictly topical, you can just ignore texts like this. Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison, what the heck is that? Well, I ain't going to worry about it because I'm never going to deal with it. I'm just going to pick out a neat topic that everybody will like. Okay, but we're not like that here. We just, we pick a book. Normally, that's our, of course, we have our special days and our special sermons and things like that. And, and nothing wrong with that, okay? Even with topical sermons, you can still be exegetical and expositional. But generally, the pulpit ministry is we get in a book and we go through it and we don't skip anything. And here we are. Here we are, much to our dismay. Here we are. <laughs> okay. So I say that jokingly. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about tackling these things. But I'm more excited about the things that are very clear. More excited. See, the problem with a lot of Christians is they get more excited about things that are unclear. And they want to debate and argue and prove everybody wrong and blah, blah, blah. That's not your preacher. That's not me. I want to re- rejoice in the clear things and the main things that are the plain things, okay? So you hang with me now. Don't doze off. You hang with me. You work with me. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day, okay? All right, let's dive in. In this passage, we see four statements regarding the triumph of Jesus Christ. The title of this message is The Triumphant Christ. The Triumphant Christ. And we see four statements regarding his great triumph over sin, death, and hell on our behalf. Statement number one, we see a concise, in verse 18, we see a concise statement of Christ's saving work. A a concise statement of Christ's saving work. In verse 18, we, we have a main thing, a main thing. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here we have a main thing, namely the death of Jesus for sinners. This is a main thing. We have in one verse here, in one single verse, in very plain talk, we have the basic facts of Christ's saving work at the cross. This is definitely, without question, without debate, a main thing. 
how a person is saved, how a person is made right with God. I don't think there would be any arguing about the importance of what is contained in this verse and its rank in relative importance among Bible doctrines. It would be up there. It would be up there. Okay? In this verse, we see very clearly and very plainly four things. Number one, Christ's death was for sins. Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, some manuscripts say instead of suffered, they say died. But the Greek is the Greek word pasco, which means literally suffer. To me, it's fairly obvious that Peter is using this word to connect what he's about to say with what he had just been talking about without his previous thought. Look back at verse 17. It's always good to get the context, right? Just like Brother Pete gave us as we resumed our Old Testament reading. He gave us the context of what was going on. Beautiful job, Pete. Thank you for doing that. And what a joy to bring back the Old Testament reading. Okay. Verse 17. He ends his previous thought with, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And it's like in verse 18, he says, Okay, speaking of suffering, speaking of suffering, For doing good, speaking of suffering, the worst suffering in history for the most good thing in history. Speaking of that, let me talk about Jesus, okay? So he uses the word pasco or suffering to connect with his last thought. But the end of the verse, we see clearly that he's talking about the death of Jesus, being put to death in the flesh, okay? So it's a suffering connecting it to its previous thought that led to the death of Jesus for our sins. So Christ's death was for sin, okay? A suffering that culminated in death. Christ's suffering and death was a payment for our sins, a payment that we could have never come close to making. And Jesus did it for us. His death was for sin. Number two, we see very clearly that Christ's death was sufficient. How do we see that? Well, in one little word, the word once. He suffered once. He suffered once, one time, once, only once. Okay? It's not like the Catholic mass where Christ is dying over and over again. You know, Christ is in the the elements and he's dying over and over again. It's not, we don't wear crucifixes with Jesus still on them. Okay. It was one time, one time he suffered once, meaning Christ's death was sufficient, sufficient. Unlike the never ending sacrificial system of the old covenant, unlike the lack of chairs in the temple because the priest could never sit down and rest from his work. Christ's death did not need to be repeated. That's why he's seated at the right hand of God. Every now and then he gets up. We've dealt with that before, okay? Every now and then he stands there. He stood up when Stephen died. Stood up to welcome the martyr Stephen. Uh, John said in Revelation 5, I see a lamb standing as though slain. Okay, so, but generally, in general, Christ is seated. Why? His work is done. 
He suffered once. He only needed to suffer once. He only needed to be nailed to the cross once. Christ's death did not need to be repeated. Nothing else had to be added. Totally sufficient. Jesus paid for every one of his people's sins with his all-sufficient death. Every sin in thought, word, and deed that you and I and every other believer in Jesus has or will commit has been paid for. His death absorbed every drop of God's wrath against our sin. It was sufficient. Hebrews Hebrews 9.28 also nails this from another angle when it says Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Okay? So, very clearly, very plainly, Christ's death was for sins. Christ's death was sufficient. Number three, we see in this one little verse, Christ's death was substitutionary. It was substitutionary. Christ also suffered once for sins. Next phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, namely Jesus, for the unrighteous, namely us. The perfect for the sinful. The holy for the unholy. God in the flesh for fleshly God-haters. Can you grasp this? Can you get this? Is this amazing or what? Is this beautiful or what? Here we have the great exchange, the holy for the unholy. Christ died in our place as our substitute. We deserve to be on that cross. We deserve to be absorbing that violent wrath of God. But Jesus took it for us, thereby deflecting it from us. We are not getting what we deserve, as we've said many, many times from this pulpit. Don't ever whine about fairness or unfairness. You don't want fair, beloved. You do not want fair. Fair would be hell forever for every one of us. We're not getting fair. We're not getting justice. We're getting grace. Why? Because Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took the wrath for us. Number four, from this one little verse, Christ's death was for sins. Christ's death uh, was sufficient. Christ's death was substitutionary. Fourthly, Christ's death was reconciling. It was reconciling. Why do I say that? Go look, look at the result of it. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Christ's death brought us to God and restored our relationship with our Creator, the relationship that had been broken because of our sin. The curtain in the temple was ripped. We now have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus, through the suffering of Jesus, 
through the substitutionary death of Jesus, through the sufficient death of Jesus. Because our debt has been paid, we can approach God with confidence. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. That's just another way of saying what Peter said. We've been brought to God. We're no longer enemies. We are now reconciled friends. The war is over. We're no longer hostile. The hostilities have been removed. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way. The only narrow way. Through him, we have also, here's another way of saying it, obtained access. Obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, beloved, it doesn't get any clearer than this. It doesn't get any plainer than this. And that's why it's a main thing. The facts of why Jesus died are clearly and concisely laid out. This is a plain thing, and it's a main thing. And there are not too many doctrines that surpass this teaching as a main thing, if any. Our greatest problem, separation from God, has been solved by the death of Jesus on the cross. So, just to sum up and repeat in different words, repeating the same facts in different words helps us to recall them and to learn them and to get them in our bloodstream. Jesus died to pay for our sins. This proves God's massive love for his people, namely us. We who are born again. We who have been chosen from the foundation of the world. Jesus died to pay for our sins. Secondly, his payment was sufficient we do not have to add anything. We do not have to add our commitment, our dedication, our church membership, etc. Nothing, nothing. We add nothing. Jesus paid it all. And therefore, all to him I owe. He died as a substitute. He died as a substitute. He died in our place. We deserve the wrath of God, but we're not getting it. This is the good news of the gospel. And because Jesus died for us, we can now have a relationship with God. We can approach God, but not only approach him, we can know him. We can know him. And that's important because what did Jesus say about that in John 17, 3? He said that was eternal life. This is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus whom he sent. Amen. So, beloved, dear friend, have you responded to these facts yet? These are plain, clear facts of the gospel. And Jesus' work on our behalf. And more important than understanding the next two verses is 
have you responded to those clear, plain, main facts? If not, today is the day of salvation. Today's the day. Bow the knee to the one who died for you. Don't put it off any longer. Today, right now. All right. Ready to move on to 19 and 20? Okay. You got that main thing in your heart rejoicing over that main thing? Okay. Verses 19 and 20. Let's read them. Because if I read them, that, that delays, that puts off having to talk about them. Okay. So let's read them again. Okay. Uh, in which, in which, okay, what's the which referring to? At the end of verse 18, uh, he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus died in the flesh. It was a real body that was nailed to the cross. He, he died in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. In which, so which is referring back to spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. Here we have a second statement connected to the triumph of Christ. We have a challenging statement of Christ's victorious proclamation. A challenging statement of Christ's victorious proclamation. And by challenging, I mean challenging to our peanut brains and puny intellect. Here's a sampling. Let me just give you a sampling, a brief sampling of what learned theologians and brilliant commentators have said about this text, okay? People probably much smarter than, 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 than you and me. At least me, I know. Maybe not you, but me, okay? Here's what Martin Luther said. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. <laughs> okay, so that's liberating, isn't it? That's freeing. That frees us up as we wade into this, okay? Wayne Grudem, a contemporary of ours, said, the meaning of this phrase is much disputed. They're, uh, they're kind of an understatement there, Dr. Wayne, okay? All right. Edmund Clowney, quote, his words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. Chuck Swindoll, these are some of the most difficult verses, not only to translate, not only to get them from the Greek to the English, but also to interpret. So difficult to translate and interpret. And, but here's my favorite. Here's my favorite. Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, This passage nobody understands, though some think they do. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Brother Charles. That is so freeing. That just frees us up. 
Now, let's consider first the questions that might be provoked by this text and that we would love to have answered. Okay? So, first question, where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? It looks like he went somewhere. That's what verse 19 says, in which he went. He went somewhere. So where did he go? That's question number one. Number two, when did he go? When did this happen? When did he go? Was it sometime between the cross and the resurrection? Was it on that Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning? Or was it a pre-incarnate appearance during the days of Noah when in spirit Jesus maybe preached through Noah to all the naysayers when Noah was building the ark? Okay, third question. We're not going to answer these today, so don't get your hopes up, okay? Spurgeon's already told us nobody understands this, so no, even though they think they do. Okay. Number three, to whom did he speak? To whom did he speak? Who are the spirits in prison? Who is this group of people? Is it even people? Are they unsaved, dead people who lived in Noah's day, who are now in the prison of Hades? Torment? Or are they demons? Are they demons who have been locked up? We read about demons being locked up. One commentator said uh, the word spirit in the Bible, is nowhere else used in the Bible for humans. It's always used with angels and fallen angels and demons. So that's something to consider. Okay, question number four. What did he say? What did he say? He, it's clear that he says, the Bible says he proclaimed something. He proclaimed something, okay, in which he went and proclaimed. It's the word for preaching. It's the word for what I'm doing right now. It's, I think, cariso or something like this for heralding, for announcing. He announced something publicly somewhere. He preached something to some group somewhere. Those are the questions we have. Over the years, learned scholars and theologians have answered these questions in myriads of ways. As David R. Helm said in his commentary, I have no intention of trying to settle centuries of mystifying debate. And neither do I. Sorry, neither, neither do I. In other words, this is not a plain thing. And therefore what? It's not a main thing not a main thing. We don't have to understand this to be born again. We don't have to understand this to get to heaven. We don't have to understand this to grow in Christ's likeness. It's not a plain thing. Therefore, it's not a main thing. 
There is one suggestion that's been given over the years that we can eliminate, though. Let me go ahead and do that this morning. It's this. Jesus did not go to hell to preach the gospel and give unsaved people a second chance. We can go ahead and eliminate that one because of texts like Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So, friends, you only get one chance, and it's during this life. It's right now, now. So instead of worrying about whether or not your preacher can figure out what verses 19 and 20 are telling us, you need to understand that you have one chance, one chance to do the right thing regarding Jesus, and it's in this life, and you don't know when this life is going to end. So as I said earlier, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. There's no second chance. No second chance. So what I want us to do this week, what I want you to do this week, dear church family, I want you to ponder these four questions. Where did Jesus go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? And what did he say? I want you to ponder those questions this week, and we may come back to this. Or we may not. We may not. i got a couple of weeks to pray about it. Granted, this is a very intriguing text. And we would love to know the correct interpretation. But it's not a main thing. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're interested in the heaven in Dependent on explaining verses 19 and 20 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Aren't you thankful? Okay, like I said, we may come back to this, but I want to move on to statement number three. It's another challenging one, but we're going to deal with this one today. I'm going to try to. Statement number three, we have in verse 21, we have a connecting statement of baptism, inward faith, and Christ's glorious resurrection. Let's read it. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. What is the this? What is baptism corresponding to? Let's look back at verse 20. The days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay? The this is the rescue of Noah's family from judgment, from the wrath of the flood, the wrath of God. Baptism corresponds to this. Now saves you. Uh Uh-oh. Baptism saves you. Hmm. Hold that. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we have another challenging verse. Woo. Okay. Spirits in prison. Jesus proclaiming. Oh, my goodness. Now baptism saves us. Is your brain tired yet? Okay. Is your brain tired? Mine is. But I'm going to press on because I got a word for you today on this verse. Here we, again, another challenging verse. But let's highlight the things that are fairly clear. Okay. Let's start there. Let's start there. The text is telling us that in some way, baptism corresponds to Noah's family being brought safely 
through the waters of the flood in the ark. So there is some connection between baptism and the flood. The big question is this. To what baptism is Peter referring? To what baptism is Peter referring? Okay? Hold that question in your mind. All right, now, secondly, now I'm not going to be dogmatic. We said that at the beginning, right? We would tackle these, the, the hard ones, uh, and, and not be dogmatic when things were not as clear. We can be dogmatic about verse 18 and every point in that, okay? But here, here, here's what I want to say. Without being dogmatic, I don't think Peter is talking here about water baptism, even though it might look like it because it's connected to the flood. That's a lot of water, okay? And even though as a Baptist believer, I might want to lean that way. But also as a Baptist believer, I don't want to lean so far where I say baptism saves you, right? And that's what the verse says. Baptism, which corresponds to Noah being rescued in the flood, now saves you. Okay, I'll come back to that. All right? Are, are you with me? Still with me? Working? Working. You're with me. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Okay? When you think of the flood and this connection here, you obviously think of water. You can't help but think, in a, think, think about water. But were Noah and his family in the water? No, they were not in the water. They were above the water. They were in something else. They were in the ark above the waters of judgment. And we're going to come back to that. Keep that lodged right there in your brain that I know is working diligently with me because you're a good church family. I know you're working, okay? But look at two clear statements. We read this phrase. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Let me get the whole context here. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism saves you. That's a troubling statement for Reformed believers, for, for five sola believers. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Now we're reading baptism saves us. Wait a minute. That, we've got we've to dig with this. We've got to dig we got to try to understand what's being said here. Baptism now saves you. Then look at the next phrase. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Here's an alternate translation. Not the washing off of physical dirt. In other words, in this text, when we are using the term baptism and connecting it to the flood, but not really to the flood, we're connecting it to the rescue of Noah's family. We are not talking about here what water does. It doesn't look like we are talking about getting wet. Remember, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So that seems to indicate we're not talking about 
Washing. We're not talking about getting wet. Remember, Noah's family weren't wet. Okay. And, and, and you, know, you can be picky and say, oh, yeah, the flow was so bad, water was spilling over. And sp-. Okay, you, you know, okay, so you want to be a sprinkler now? Okay. All right, so we're not, you know, you, Noah, in general, the Noah's family were not wet. They were not in the water. They were not dumped. They were not immersed. They were not in the water. They were above the water. Okay, then the next phrase we want to tackle, baptism now saves you. Does the Bible teach? Remember, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible, right? That's a basic fundamental of Bible interpretation. Uh, I, I, what's the Latin phrase? Uh, uh, something analogy or something, the analogy of Scripture, okay? Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. So here's the question. Does the Bible overall teach that water baptism saves us? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So if that's what, Peter's, if that's what Peter is saying, he's contradicting Scripture. So we can eliminate that. We can just eliminate that. Of course not. No work saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Not of works. Not of any work. Including baptism. Not of any work so that no man can boast. No man can say, I got baptized, so I got a place in heaven. No. No. Can't say that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We just saw in verse 18, Christ's death was sufficient. Nothing needed to be added to it, including baptism. Our salvation is not of works, so that no one can boast. So, what can this mean? What can this phrase mean, baptism now saves you? Well, let's ask another question. Is there a baptism in the Bible that saves us? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. But it's not water baptism. It's what? It's spirit baptism. It's spirit baptism. It's baptism with the Holy Spirit. As John MacArthur says, it's a dry baptism. A dry baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all, every one of us, all, all. This is not a second act of grace. That's a whole other message for another day to my charismatic, charismatic friends. This is not a second act. We were all. We were all, every believer, baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay. Again, we see wet word, what look like wet words there, okay? Baptized, drink, but they're not wet. They're, they're, they're not really wet. It's, there's no wetness there. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. John MacArthur says this, quote, The only baptism that saves people is dry, the spiritual one, into the death as well as the resurrection of Christ, of those who appeal to God to place them into the spiritual ark of safety. Amen. And that brings us to our next point. Baptism is not only connected to Noah's family being rescued from the flood, but look, it's also connected to inward faith. Look what it says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, not, not by getting wet, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. There's the inward connection. The inward cry from the depths of our being for a good conscience, a clean conscience. The inward cry for a new heart, which God graciously gives us. We just sang it. We just sang it. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. Don't dream about being good enough. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him, to have this appeal for a clean conscience, a good conscience. And then what's the next line? This he gives you. This he gives you. He gives you this appeal. Salvation is all of God. He gives you this cry for a good conscience, for a new heart. When does he give us this feeling of need? You haven't left me yet, have you? Okay, don't, don't come to me with, with the, uh, I don't want to be in a classroom speech again. I've had enough of those already. One's enough, okay? When does he give you this feeling of need? When does he give us this appeal to God for a good conscience? When we are born again. When we are born again. When we are born of the Spirit. In other words, when we are baptized by Jesus in or with the Spirit into the body of Christ. Which was, listen, don't, please don't leave me. Which was prefigured and foreshadowed by those eight people who were placed in the ark. Is it coming together for you? I hope so. I hope it's all coming together for you. This is a challenging verse, but it's beautiful. It is so beautiful. Here's a, let's, let's bring Paul into the discussion, okay? From Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Here's, here's, here it is from another angle, from another biblical writer, from another inspired writer, saying pretty much the same thing. He said this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works, like baptism, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, watch this, by the washing, wet word, wet word, but not wet, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, another wet word that's not wet, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here we have a description by the Apostle Paul writing to Titus of spirit baptism, of spirit baptism, using wet phraseology like washing and poured out that is not wet as MacArthur said it's dry it's dry just like the text we're studying just like the text we're studying Peter mentions the flood that makes we want to think wet but we're not talking wet we're talking spirit baptism spirit baptism 
Finally, we see that this baptism is connected. And here's, here's the final piece of the puzzle. Here's the, here's the final. You know when you finish a puzzle and you pop that final piece in there? What a great feeling that is. Here it is. The baptism is also connected. This baptism that Peter's talking about, that we believe, well, that I believe. You wrestle with it, okay? Like I said, I'm not going to be dogmatic. Really smart people have connected it to water baptism. That's fine, okay? Since, it, since it's not plain, it's not main, okay? But lost my train of thought. Baptism. Okay, lost it totally. Senior moment. This baptism is not only connected to the, the flood, which makes us think water, but I don't believe it is. It's also connected to what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Final piece of the puzzle. Final piece of the puzzle. It's true. Let me let me. Speak what I love to speak about when we were over there next to the wall baptizing somebody. It's, it's totally true. It's very true. It's wonderfully true that water baptism by immersion that we believe is the correct way. But don't believe that people who don't believe that are not going to make it to heaven. Don't believe that. It's a secondary thing. Okay. But while we do believe that water baptism by immersion is a, is a beautiful picture of our resurrection with Christ, again, I don't think Peter is talking about that right here. I don't think he's talking about water baptism because he's talking about a baptism that saves. How does baptism in the Spirit save? Here we have it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us. He answers that question. How does spirit baptism save? Answer, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love the way J. Adams says it. Okay? Because remember, before I get to the Adams quote, remember that Peter has also told us that this baptism, as well as being connected to Christ's resurrection, also co- corresponds to God's rescue of Noah's family in the ark. Here's how the founder of the counseling ministry that Cheryl and I are part of, here's how he puts it. Quote, how does spirit baptism save? As the ark raised the eight from destruction, so too Christians are raised above eternal destruction by being baptized into Jesus Christ. And then he says, compare further, Romans 6, verse 1 and following. And thereby are saved. It is our resurrection with Christ that raises us above destruction. We are saved by virtue of being in him. And our kids rockers could answer this. To which the ark pointed. Our kids rockers know this. The ark points us to Jesus. The ark was the fortress that protected Noah and his family from the judgment 
of God's wrath. In the same way, when we are in Christ through salvation, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. And we are also protected from the wrath of God's judgment that is coming on the last day. Adams continues, When we are counted to be in Christ through spirit baptism, another way of saying that, when we are united with him, union with him, we are reckoned to have experienced all that he did, including his resurrection. So we are saved by being raised in him as those in the ark were saved by being raised above the destruction of the flood. Amen and hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Well, hope you hope you stay with me through all that. It's beautiful. And then finally, not going to spend much time on this, because we've got Ascension Sunday coming. I'm going to save the fourth statement for two weeks. Let me just say this right here real quick. In verse 22, we get a clear statement of Christ's crowning ascension. A clear statement. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here's another pretty clear statement, very plain, very straightforward. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That's not a challenging statement. It's very plain. It's very clear. And therefore, it's a main thing. Jesus rules and reigns. And that's a very big main thing. Jesus is king. He is king. Angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. And beloved, how we need to be reminded of this great truth in this day and age when it seems like the wheels are coming off of everything. We will unpack this more, like I said, on Ascension Sunday, which is two weeks from today, and see how important the ascension is for the believer. Okay. So let's wrap it up. Don't you love the word of God? <laughs> Man, I, I just wish, I, I wish the, the, maybe, maybe there's nobody like this. Maybe nobody's here like this. But the, the, the handful that, that might have thought this was just a bunch of theological gobbledygook, it really doesn't matter to your everyday life. I just wish, I just wish God would do a work in your heart. But maybe nobody's here like that. Praise the Lord. Maybe there's nobody here. Maybe somebody listening on the internet, though. Oh, what a waste of time. I just pray God will do a work in your heart. Don't you love the Word of God? Don't you love digging into it? Don't you love being challenged by it? It'll, it'll stop Alzheimer's, maybe. Work your brain. Work your brain. Practice. And Bible study is one way to work your brain. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Maybe that's totally, you know, baloney right there, what I just said. Okay, you, you study it, okay? But don't you love being challenged by the Word of God? Don't you love that God speaks to us from its inspired words? Don't you love being washed in it and sanctified by it? 
Don't you love its clear message of the gospel? Don't you love your mind being renewed? Don't you love getting to know Jesus by reading it and studying it? What a blessing it is to have the precious word of God. May God grow us in the heart attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. For they are the joy of my heart. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the word made flesh. Who died for our sins. Who died once for our sins. Showing that his work was sufficient. Who died as our substitute. Taking our place. On the cross. And who died. To bring us to you. To make we who were. Once your enemies. Now your friends, bless your name. And now we rejoice in coming to the table to remember just that and to commune with you and with each other in a spiritual sense for our good and your glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.